2: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash loss. That's plushcare.com slash loss.
3: Did you know that I'm back doing another live show? Yes, I know. It's been a while, hasn't it? It's called The Stalker, and I share investigations where I learned probably a little too much about that murky world. The show is on Saturday, the 25th of February at the State Library of Victoria. Tickets are through Eventbrite. I didn't think it was a bad idea for a Christmas present, don't you think? This week I thought I'd give you an idea of what you can expect as a Patreon. Along with extras like first opportunities for tickets to my shows and early release of my podcasts, you also get an extra episode a month. And today is one of those extra episodes that I did last year. In fact, this time last year, as I was talking about the effect that COVID had had on all of us, I had no idea about what 2022 was going to bring to my husband and I and the Rochester community. Um... But I do need to give you a warning about this particular uh, episode because it goes into detail about a rape investigation where I describe the process immediately after a rape is reported and it just could be triggering for some. I became aware of this investigation while researching for my investigative techniques class that I was taking at NMIT in around 2015 And I found the investigation so disturbing on so many levels as an investigator, and there were just so many lessons to learn. I need to reiterate that even though I mention it during the podcast, it doesn't hurt to repeat it, that I don't know who the investigators were, and I have no inside knowledge. I know what I know about this through researching the net. Thanks. The wrongful conviction related to a young 19-year-old Somali man named Mr. Farrar Abdulkiah Jama, who I'll refer to from here on in as Mr. Jarma. He had no prior convictions and he was convicted of rape in the county court here in Melbourne on the 21st of July 2008. Yes, it happened here, a wrongful conviction in Melbourne. It was a case which stayed with me for obvious reasons, but just the injustice and the fact that a young man had been incarcerated for 15 months before it was discovered that he hadn't even committed the rape, the rape had never actually occurred, and he'd never been in the area. And evidence to me seemed to have. Been ignored or dismissed very quickly. How was it that a brief of evidence was approved even though the initial investigating police had voiced concerns at the fact that it was entirely dependent on DNA evidence and the dangers of relying on DNA evidence alone? Like, Concerns were raised, and it seems to me to have been dismissed about the possibility of contamination of the DNA evidence. It appears that everyone, from the investigating police to the uh, the sergeant in charge of the, the investigation, the officer in charge that authorised the brief, the OPP that the brief went to, uh, then to a committal, through a committal, to a trial, that it was never, ever questioned really, never really gone into about was there any possibility about contamination of the evidence. So I just thought uh, it appears to me, yeah, that um, nobody, they either hadn't or didn't uh know the practice that I bang on about all the time, that theory, you know, the parachute theory about keeping the mind open. Because And because of that, a young man paid the ultimate price of being incarcerated, even though he pleaded his innocence from the very start. And then, just as importantly, is the victim of this alleged rape, who was reported to be unconscious at the time, Recalling nothing, discovering that she had in fact never been raped or sexually assaulted, which had been, uh, you know, a, a possibility due to her state of intoxication and her fears that her drink at a nightclub had been spiked. She was the victim of nothing physical, it turned out in the end, apart from, I was going to say, gross negligence. I don't know if that's if that's fair, but maybe uh, a lack of knowledge maybe about DNA. Uh, but I know her psychological star, scars, as will Mr. Jarmer's, will probably never heal. And and this isn't about hanging anyone out to dry, although it might seem it, but it's about not, not cutting corners and just allowing the evidence to speak for itself and investigating every single piece of information and the dangers of not checking everything. And I think our, our dear friend, Mr. Iddles, Ron Iddles, the ABC of investigations, assume nothing, believe nothing and check everything. And on top of that, I think is an issue with tunnel vision and how dangerous that is. Mr. Jarmer was charged on the basis of a single swab which contained a very, very minute sample of his DNA. Nothing more, nothing less. Investigators and everyone involved from then on took it as gospel with nothing further required to convince themselves that Mr. Jarmer had committed a rape. Convicting someone on DNA evidence alone, it's dangerous at any time, and I believe and hope that this has changed since 2008 when this occurred. Yes, DNA is a considerable value in any investigation, but other forms of proof of the offence should also be sought. You know, not, oh, well, the DNA evidence is there, down tools, and we move on to the next case. It's just... So dangerous. Um, Yeah, it's just so dangerous. Um, Anyway, so this swab with Mr. Jarmer's DNA had been taken from a woman who we are going to call Woman B. And she'd been found in a toilet cubicle at a nightclub, unconscious and conveyed to hospital due to her condition. And at that hospital, she voiced her concerns at the possibility that her drink had been spiked, and why else would her drink be spiked unless she was sexually assaulted? That was her belief. And with any report of that nature, if somebody, you know, if somebody thinks that and there's a few things to indicate, you know, she might be right you'd have to look into that fully. And that's what police did. So police were called, as was a forensic medical officer who we refer to as an FMO. And that person uh, examined the woman and took swabs from her vagina, from her clothing and her body. The FMO who took the swabs from the woman, woman B., had in fact been in the same examination room the previous 24 hours, where another woman had engaged in some form of sexual activity with Mr. Jarmer, but no charges were ever laid. So what happened in the following 24 hours changed many people's lives, but it was the reason physical examinations of sexual assault victims changed dramatically so that the situation i'm about to tell you is never repeated the subject of contamination of the dna sample in this case was always front and center but it was always assumed that if contamination had happened at all it would have happened at vifm the victorian institute of forensic medicine and an expert scientist provided uh, uh, expert evidence as to how that could never occur at VIFM due to the processes and procedures that they undertake. However, it was never, ever known until the prosecution were preparing for the appeal, which I'll get to, that it was discovered that the same FMO had examined both women in the same room at the same hospital within 24 hours of each other. And if this would have been discovered earlier, I don't think the matter would have, it wouldn't have got past first base. So the lead up to this situation, details are scant, but let's say, let's call the first woman, Woman A. So, Woman A reports that um, she had a non-consensual sexual, uh, some sort of sexual activity with Mr. Jarmer, a friend of hers, Um, and hence she'd attended at a metropolitan hospital where she was triaged, as what normally happens with sexual assault victims. And she was then led to a de- designated area in, oh, there's probably in maybe eight or nine of the major hospitals in here in Victoria, there is a designated area for sexual assault victims. And it doesn't have, you know, the big uh, sign sexual assault victim services or something. It's just a, a plain little door and you walk in there and there's generally a an area where the sexual assault victim, after she's been triaged, he or she, but let's refer to it as she this time because this is what this one's about. But uh, they are led into like a little sort of, um, what would you call it? A on informal area prior to going into the consultation room it's a little area with some with couches and little tea and coffee making facilities and that's where you know we might call in her parents or her girlfriend or a support person but it's also where she will initially be introduced to uh, the uh, casa Counsellor, the Centre Against Sexual Assault, any uh, victim of any sexual offence is generally uh, provided an opportunity to speak with a sexual assault counsellor prior to the police. Uh, so she's been taken to this little room and she's had a, a chat with a sexual assault counsellor. She's then introduced to the police. The police then have a chat to the victim and they will then call in the FMO. And so everybody involved in this investigation so far will be an expert in their field in the field of sexual assault investigations. And what's happened is that the FMO has come in, and again, I don't I just from the start. I don't know anybody in this case. It's I only know what I've read and what I've researched. I don't know any detectives. I don't know where they're from. I don't know the FMO's name. I'm not trying to be um, evasive. I, I, Yes, I know nothing about it other than what I've read. So, But I'm just saying about what I've experienced as a sexual assault investigator, what will generally happen when a victim goes to a a major hospital to be examined. So anyway, the victim will then be given an opportunity uh, to uh, speak to the FMO. And what the FMO will do is he or she will go through what the victim is alleging so that the FMO will know where to examine because you don't want to do uh, an internal examination, for instance, if there's absolutely no indication of any penetration. So if they've been penetrated anally or vaginally, of course, you would do that as a matter of course to see if there is any evidence. But if they don't allege that and it's not believed that it's necessary, you know, of course, you're not going to do it. So the FMO makes lots and lots of notes. And anyway, so they have a bit of a chat. And then what will happen is the uh, oh, by this stage, the sexual assault counsellor would have left and the sexual assault counsellor would have given the victim um, a card, uh, details about what to expect, how to feel, all that sort of thing, and obviously a phone number uh, for you know follow up. So the victim will then go into a consulting the consultation room, I suppose, with the uh, with the FMO, and the FMO will uh, conduct a physical examination, which may include internal examinations if required. So the actual examination room comprises of a bed, which either the police or the FMO would make up on arrival. And that's where we just put a sheet where he or she is going to lay. Uh, There's obviously an examination light uh, next to the bed, is always a trolley. And that trolley will contain everything that the FMO will need for the examination. It's pretty much like most uh, examination consulting rooms that many of us have been in. But in that, on that trolley, there's uh, swabs, there's spatulas, there's labels, there's evidence bags, everything that the FMO will require to conduct that examination. And all these items are Sealed separately, so to use them, you have to un, you know, unseal them, and then when you get the um, the sample of whatever you're, you've taken, it is then placed into a bag which is sealed. It's labelled uh, the time, who's um, who's taken it, who's put it in the bag, and they are all then put into um, a big evidence bag. And they are then given to the police person that is there at the at the in the rooms with the victim. That would also include the sheet that the victim has laid on. It will include all the victim's clothing, which are all separated and put into separate bags, so that there's less chance of any cross-contamination. Uh, the victim is will then be examined, um, they've removed their clothing, everything's been placed in the evidence bags, and all the swabs, etc., are taken ASAP by the police out to the VIFM for examination. In the examination of woman A, which is the one where she was alleging some sort of sexual activity with her friend, Mr. Jama. Uh, there was uh, samples taken of her, but also she had a dried substance in her hair, which they but which but was believed to possibly be dried semen. It's known that Mr. Jarmer was interviewed regarding the report made by Woman A, but on him being interviewed for this offence, he provided a version of events which in most part was later accepted by the woman. So hence, no charges were ever laid. However, we have still got the DNA sample of the uh, dried semen in her hair. So then we come to Woman B. Woman B was the woman found unconscious in the toilet cubicle. So, Woman B was examined in the same room as Woman A had been examined in the previous 24 hours. And this woman, Woman B, as I said, she'd been found unconscious in a toilet cubicle of a nightclub in Doncaster. She was discovered by security staff and on coming to, that's when she stated she just felt her drink had to have been spiked and that she felt it was possible that her drink had been spiked so that she could be sexually assaulted. So the authorities were called, the woman was conveyed, as I said, to the same hospital and the same examination room where woman A had been in the previous 24 hours. Woman B told the FMO and the counsellor, as I said, that she believed her drink had been spiked. And it was the only explanation that she believed which would render her unconscious. So she was examined forensically and swabs taken, which could assist or which would assist in determining if... She had been sexually assaulted. So a swab was taken from Woman B. On one of those swabs was found to contain male DNA, and this DNA was identified as belonging to Mr. Jarmer, and it was matched through the DNA that had been obtained the night before from Woman A. So we've got Woman A with uh, DNA evidence saying the DNA is Mr. Jarmer's. We've got woman B who's had a swab taken and she has DNA confirming that Mr. Jarmer's uh, DNA is on her. So both swabs, there was no indication, nothing uh that indicated anything untoward with those swabs. They'd been taken leg- legally. They'd been treated as expected by the police and VIFM, and they'd been examined. Mr. Jarma was interviewed for the rape of woman B, but he denied everything. He said a whole lot of things, but he said he'd never been to Doncaster, didn't even know where it was. Uh, he didn't know anyone in that area. In fact, he gave an alibi and he said that he'd been at home with his family because his father was gravely ill and he couldn't have been at the nightclub because he was at home. The only evidence that the investigating detective had linking Mr. Jarmer to Woman B was the DNA evidence. And This detective, like all of us that uh, attend detective training school, it's always been drummed into us that relying on DNA evidence alone is very, very risky and it's very dangerous. The lack of any other corroborating evidence other than the DNA linking Mr. Jarma to the rape, it concerned the detective greatly. And this detective, I don't know if it was a male or female, but outlined these concerns on a report. Along with the possibility that there may have been some contamination of the sample at the lab. However, VIFM reported some uh, an
2: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
3: Expert, like the, the top of the field out there, reported that it was impossible for those two samples to be contaminated due to the number of processes that they go through. And as I said, this report was by a leading scientist and an expert in his field. But because he was an expert, his opinion was never, ever questioned any further through all of the court cases, through uh, the committal, through the trial, never questioned. So what happens is the detective uh, puts together a brief of evidence now, that brief of evidence will include uh, all the, the relevant, all the statements that he or she has taken, all exhibits, all photographs, if there was telephone records, which there wasn't, which I'll go into a minute. But anything that the uh, prosecution are going to rely on, and, and sometimes not rely on, have to go into that brief of evidence. It's about procedural fairness. Everything you've discovered has to go into that brief. And so what happens is the the brief is then sent to that detective's, let's say it's a sergeant, a detective sergeant, and that detective sergeant checks the brief. That detective sergeant will check that um, everything that could possibly have been done in this investigation, was done. Any anomalies would have to be um, uh, confirmed or do not. Everything, it's um, cross every T and dot every I. So it then goes, when the and the sergeant may look at it and say, no, I think we need to uh, consider going and seeing, you know, witness Z, Get a statement from them about what or what what did or didn't happen. So it would then bounce back to the detective. The detective would do what the sergeant says or suggests, and then put the brief back in. And once the sergeant is happy with it, it then goes to the detective, senior sergeant, or the officer in charge of that unit, and that's what's called. Um, it's submitted for authorization. So what that means is that. Ultimately, the officer in charge is responsible as to whether he or she believes that there's enough evidence for the person uh, perpetrator to be charged, or whether there isn't enough evidence and you know it can't go any further. But after the detective senior sergeant um, has looked at the brief and it's been authorised. Uh, You know, then there's a whole lot of processes that go through. And one of them is that the brief is forwarded to the Office of Public Prosecutions, the OPP, for consideration. So there's a lot of steps to get to, you know, a a committal or even just a, um, you know, a, a, a normal hearing at a magistrates court. So everyone, has looked at this matter would be very aware that the prosecution case was solely run on DNA. That was all they had. And there were, you know, other checks done to make sure that the expert opinion, uh, there was absolutely no way that it could have been, the the DNAs could have been contaminated. Um, The defence, their case, was that there was uh, insufficient evidence to support the fact that Mr. Jarmer was charged and was the perpetrator. Uh, what they uh, highlighted was the fact that uh, he, Mr. Jarma, had no prior convictions. Um, he was a person of what we call good character, as in a clean skin. Uh, and there was absolutely no evidence that the prosecution had to put Mr. Jarma in Doncaster or anywhere near Doncaster, apart from that DNA sample. So, Mr. Jarma maintained his innocence from the very start. But as I said, remember before, I said that he also had alibis for what he'd told the detective, and uh, yes. Yeah, so we have now got to the stage where Mr. Jarma is formally charged with rape because the the detective senior sergeant or officer in charge has authorised the process. So he's uh, charged and off we go to, it, it's then a, a committal date is set. Now, remember what I've always said, um, again, at DTS, Detective Training School, we're taught a lot of things, but one of the first things we learn is, what is the aim of any investigation? And that's whether it's the theft of a bicycle or a murder. The aim of every or any investigation is to determine, has an offence occurred? And you'd have to say on the face of it, yes, because we have male DNA unexplained on a victim. Uh, the the next step is to identify the offender. Yes, we've done that. To identify the offender's whereabouts. Yes, we've done that. The last point is to determine the nexus or the connection between the offence and the offender. And yes, there was a nexus, a very bloody strong nexus, the DNA, but absolutely nothing else. So the date for the committal set, And in general terms, a matter can't go straight to trial. Yes, it can under certain conditions, which I won't bore you with, but it wasn't in this instance. So a committal is almost like a mini trial. Uh, It's not heard in front of a jury. A magistrate is, I suppose, really a summary of the evidence that the prosecution have. And the magistrate will determine if he or she believes there's enough evidence for the matter to go to trial, and that is in front of a judge and jury. So the magistrate believed, he ordered, that Mr. Jarma stand trial. I don't know if he was ever remanded, but um, there was a trial. During the trial, there was a number of pieces of information that were you know, pretty interesting, uh, Mr. Jarmer, I don't know if I've said, but he's, uh, at the time he was 19, the victim was 48. The nightclub in Doncaster was for over 28s. Um, Mr. Jarmer stated, and there was never any evidence that he'd ever gone anywhere near uh, Doncaster. He had no cultural links or other links to the area, Uh he said he didn't even know where Doncaster was. Uh, there was no evidence at him being at the nightclub. Uh, now they did have CCTV footage at the nightclub, but Murphy's law—it was—it worked on an ad hoc basis at best. So what they determined, what they could determine, was that, or the police could determine, was that the CCTV footage, say, worked. Um, most of the night or oh, between, say, 8pm and 9.30, it played up and they didn't have any footage. And then there was another time later in the night, maybe between 1am and 2.30 or something like that, that it, it also played up. So it couldn't be determined, uh, confirmed or otherwise, whether Mr Jarmer was there. There was no security or I or said no um, CCTV footage. No staff could recall any dark-skinned patrons that night. Uh, apparently, the nightclub was full of generally uh, Caucasian uh, males and females And they said that if anybody uh, with dark skin was there, they would have remembered them and they couldn't remember them. Also, Mr. Jarmer couldn't be identified. Uh, A number of people were shown um, a folder which depicted his photograph with another uh, 11 similar males. He was never identified by anybody, uh, the victim included. As to, oh, yes, I know that person. That's the person that I saw at the nightclub or, you know, in the toilet cubicle, whatever. No evidence whatsoever. There was also no fingerprint evidence in the toilet cubicle. Now, Woman B gave evidence in the trial that she remembers speaking to some males at the nightclub before she believes her drink was spiked. And she said she had a reasonable recollection of who she spoke to, but she never spoke to any as she described, black men. Uh, And Mr. Jarmer is a very tall, skinny man of African appearance, who I would suggest you might remember speaking to at a nightclub, just due to the fact that his appearance is maybe a little bit different or uh, unusual. So all the evidence at the trial was that the only evidence that could be um, given was that a DNA swab containing Mr. Jarmer's DNA was found on the victim. Uh, and for what it's worth, it wasn't in her vagina. I believe it was on her person somewhere. And the only other evidence that was led was that that DNA was as a result of her being raped in the toilet Uh, basically about 30 minutes after she arrived. Now, my concern, well, there's a lot of concerns, but I read a lot of evidence which I believed seems to have been ignored. I can't imagine it being ignored, but it seemed to be ignored or dismissed. Like The question was raised, why would a 19-year-old Somali man go to an over 28s nightclub. Yeah, look, you could argue, you know, some younger men like older women. I, I don't know. Yes, it's a possibility, I suppose. But in general, it would be unusual, I would have thought. Although it is a long time since I've been to a nightclub. However, um, so it was alleged by the prosecution that the rape was opportunistic. But if it was opportunistic, How would Mr Jarmer have managed to drag this unconscious woman, uh, spike her drink, drag her into the cubicle and take a huge risk in raping her in the cubicle with the possibility that someone might walk in? And I've read that there were around 800 people in the venue. It would be very rare that there would only be one person in a woman's toilet. Uh, So, And another thing was that it required two pretty burly security guards who found her in the cubicle, unconscious, to drag her from that cubicle to where she was placed in an ambulance. So what would have had to have happened is that um, he's dragged her into the toilet, locked the door, raped her, and then he's uh, uh, jumped over the door and walked out without being seen by anybody. I thought it was also interesting that there were absolutely no telephone records of any, like no triangulation, uh, nothing to say that he was in the area at the time. Uh, there were no police checks done. There was no parking or traffic infringement notices given, never anything connecting him with Doncaster. Uh, in fact... <sighs> Yeah, it it appeared that he'd never, ever been to the area. And there was also no possibility, was determined, that any of the labels or any of the evidence uh, obtained by the FMO had been mislabeled because they described a process they go through, you know, what time that the uh, sample is taken, who by uh, it's put into a little uh, bottle or whatever it's put into, it's then sealed. It's then put into another uh, bag, which is then sealed. It 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 could not. There was no possibility of any mislabelling. Another thing is, the trolley surfaces and other surfaces. Yes, they could be a source of contamination, but the information that was gained seemed to suggest that the cleaning had been performed in accordance with protocols. So there's another... That didn't seem to have been examined in great detail to me. The possibility of contamination where both women had been wasn't explored further after that report from the expert scientist... And I also thought it was interesting, and I'm not sure why. But the previous matter regarding Woman A, which is why uh, Jar- Mr. Jarmer's DNA was on the database anyway, it hadn't been looked at. Nobody had looked into that that uh, that that report and why he'd been, you know, exonerated or whatever it be. Also, Mr. Jarmer's family provided alibi evidence that. The night of the rape, the alleged rape, he never left the place. He never left his father's side. So the evidence, you know, we've got the swabs from woman one. We've got the swabs from woman two. We've got no other persons that have entered the examination room in the preceding 30 hours since the swabs were taken from woman one, between woman one and woman two. The FMO gave evidence that they, Had continually washed their hands after every, let's say they examined their hair. Well, once they've examined their hair, they would then take off the gloves, they glove everything, they would have taken off the gloves, put on a new set of gloves, and say, examined the body. And then if they were going to do an internal, they'd take off the gloves and put new gloves on. So the FMO gave evidence of all these changes of gloves, of uh, washing their hands continually, the towel that they uh, wipe their hands in had been put in separate bags. Um, So it would be difficult for any contamination in those sort of circumstances. What was established was that it was assumed, again, assume nothing, (laughs) it was assumed that the contract cleaners had cleaned all the rooms thoroughly between both examinations of both women. It was never, ever confirmed one way or the other, although uh, the judge in the appeal, which I'll get to in a minute, they believed that even though the contract cleaners said they had cleaned, they don't believe that it was cleaned to the depth that it needed to be from a DNA point of view. Uh, It's no doubt that they cleaned the surfaces, you know, maybe with a bit of GIF or maybe with a, I don't know, some sort of a spray, a spray and wipe maybe, but it's not up to the standard required uh, with DNA. So, it was also determined with the FMO, they washed their hands and all that all the time, yes. But also the FMO changed uh, their clothing a number of times between examining woman A and examining woman B. So they would changed their clothing, they'd showered, and it was considered to be a remote possibility that DNA had been transferred through the doctor's clothing or somehow in the examination room, but it was really never, ever uh, determined. So Mr. Jarmer, in the trial, he was convicted of rape by a judge and jury. He was sentenced to six years jail with a minimum of four. So what happens is he goes to jail always maintain his innocence but what happens is that they appeal the sentence so what happens is the prosecution begin going through everything for the grounds for appeal and they start to look into things a bit more and this is where they discover that yes the 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 issue wasn't with VIFM because what the experts said was true that uh, it couldn't have happened there because of the processes they go through. But what they didn't actually look at was, could it have been in the very first instance at the hospital with the FMO, with uh, the, the rooms at the hospital? And what the prosecution found is that Would you believe a flake from the dried semen in woman A's hair when she was sitting on the couch, either waiting for the FMO or talking to the counsellor or the police, a bit of a flake of that has come off onto a couch or a piece of furniture or something. But what's happened then is that... uh, Woman B comes in within the next 24 hours, sits on the same couch and that flake of dried semen somehow finds its way onto woman B's clothing. That is where the cross-contamination occurred. Isn't that scary? Uh When the prosecution discovered this, it was almost immediate that Mr. Jarmer was released and I haven't checked it up, but I know it was a lot of money and I don't think any amount of money would be enough for what he had gone through. But it is almost incredible to think that something so small, so invisible to the naked eye could transfer. Remember, there's a, a saying with um, with policing, it's, it's not a saying, it's a principle, Lockhart's principle, that every contact leaves its traces. And boy, does that confirm that, <laughs> that principle. Um, anyway, so that is a terrible situation, isn't it? And it happened here. Anyway, so look, that's it from me for uh, 2021. I know it hasn't been easy this year. Thank you so much. I hope I've helped you get through um, what's been a really difficult year. I wish you, your family, your loved ones, your friends, um, a Merry Christmas and a really great and happy new year. And oh my goodness, I hope 2022 uh, is kinder to us than 2021. Again, I can't thank you enough for your patronage. Thank you so much, and Merry Christmas. Thank you. As you've probably noticed, we've moved to a new platform called ACAST. I think that's... (laughs) the right expression i've got no idea and my previous reviews haven't transferred over i need reviews (laughs) could you do me a favor and put up a review and thank you so much for your support and patronage with your help i can give you that little bit extra thanks